Hear the word of the Lord. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to start with asking you all a question. What is the world without? There's many things, but what's one thing that the world seems to be constantly lacking? In high demand, but in short supply. I'll give you a hint. It's what every Miss America says she wants to see happen in the world in her lifetime. It's peace. That's a stereotype, but I'm going to go with it. It's peace. No matter where you look or what culture you study or what culture you come from, peace is always lacking. This is not an astute observation either. You can just look around and you see this. Conflict, division, and strife seem to be the norm in the world. And I'm not talking about the big stuff. Actually, it seems like we're, we have fewer wars now than we ever have in all of history. No, I mean the everyday nature of conflict and division and strife. On social media, on the media, in homes, between family members, on 465, between fellow commuters, there is conflict and there is a lack of peace. And sadly, this is not limited to the world but it manifests itself in the church. And friends, this is not a trivial problem. It's not a Baptist problem. It's a fallen problem. Mankind is plagued with conflict. But as the people of God, who are no longer enemies of God, but instead have peace with God, we can be a people of peace in the world of conflict. The text this morning helps us see this reality that conflict does still come up, even among the body of Christ, but it can be resolved because we're not left to our own ways. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Prince of Peace. We have been given peace with God. We have been given the peace of God, and we are accompanied by the God of Peace. So, 
because of Christ, because of what we have in Christ, and because of who Christ has made us, we can be a people of peace. Not we must, yes, I mean, we should and we ought, but it's better, friends, we can. We can be a people of peace in Christ. To see that, what we're going to do is we're going to break this text up into three sections. The first section is a plea for peace in verses 2 and 3. The second section is the path to peace in verses 4 through 7. And then the final section will be the life of peace in verses 8 and 9. A plea for peace, the path to peace, and the life of peace. So let's look back. We're going to read verses 2 and 3 again, and we're going to see the plea for peace. Starting in verse 2. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we've been spending a year in Philippians, not because we've been going super slow, but because I've had gaps as we go. But what we've seen is not this. What we've seen is tenderness and compassion. Paul is yearning to see the Philippians again. Like, this is a friendly tone all throughout this letter. He has never directly called out anybody by name in a bad way. And he's, he's never said, stop doing this. Right? This has been a friendly, compassionate, and tender letter. But now we see all those other things. We see a stop this and we see two ladies who are drawn out of the church of Philippi and said to agree. Their conflict has been brought about. And just imagine for a minute, friends, this letter probably would have been read out loud to the whole body. It's like, just just imagine you're in Philippi and you're hearing this and you're hearing of who Christ is, you're like, yes, amen. Justified by Christ alone, amen, yes, more of that, Paul. And then you hear, I entreat you, Odia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, and all the air just gets sucked out of the room, right? Everybody's like on attention, like, what'd you say? Sitting straight up, no one's looking, but their eyes are straining, right? Like, did you, Odia, hear that? Syntyche hear that? Like, Paul knows what's going on. Like, it's, it's, it just grabs your attention. If you're in Philippi or if you're Euodia or Syntyche, it definitely grabs your attention. But even to us as a reader, this is shocking. It's shocking to hear this as you've been reading through Philippians. And it's shocking because this, it's not a trivial matter. That's why. Division and conflict among the body is not to just be brushed off as trivial It's something that needs to be addressed head on. That's why this is so abrupt. And before we see how Paul addresses this plea, I'm going to break down the plea. But before we do that, I do want to make two observations, just general observations about what's going on with this plea. First of all, the first observation, remember who the letter's written to. It's written to Philippi. It's not written to Corinth, where you have a dude sleeping with a stepmom and people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. 
It's written to Philippi. It's written to those who are partners in the gospel with Paul. He yearned for them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. They sent a gift to him while he was in prison. And not by like Caesar's postal service. They sent a gift by sending somebody who almost died but still kept on going to get him that gift. This is a church that is committed to the gospel and that is on fire for the gospel. This is a healthy church. So conflict and division, it's not limited to churches who struggle. It's not limited to churches on the outside. You're like, I don't know about that church. No, it's a virus that can infect even the healthiest of churches. First observation. The second observation is the women being charged are faithful followers of Jesus. Look at how Paul describes them in verse 3. First, he says that they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So the word labored there is actually used earlier in this book, in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, this is like the heart of the book, of like the commands. He says, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how is your life worthy of the gospel? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Same words, labored and striving. Striving or laboring side by side for the faith of the gospel. These women have a history of doing exactly what Paul wants to see all believers in Philippi do. And their book is written in the book of life. That's an Old Testament phrase that Paul's drawing forward. We see it all over the Old Testament and then John uses it a whole bunch in Revelation. But in Psalm 69, we, we read, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, the book of life, and let them not be written among the righteous. So the righteous, those who are before God, seen as righteous before him, his people are those who are written in the book of life. So friends, Paul's just saying in another way that these are sisters, and they're sisters in Christ. These are true followers of Jesus. So these two observations, what they show us is that conflict and division affect healthy churches and true believers. So who is this for? Is this just for you, Odia and Syntyche? Is it just for the church that looks like it has problems or those Christians that we are not really sure about? No, this is for all of us. This is for all of us. The plea for peace is for all and applies to all. So let's look at that plea. How does Paul make this plea for peace? Well, there's two aspects to it. What they must do, they being the ladies, and then what the body must do. First, what they must do. The plea is for these women to agree in the Lord. It says, I entreat you, ladies, to agree in the Lord. This command to agree in the Lord is not actually a new request. It sounds like it is, but it's not. Actually, it's one of the most repeated words in the book of Philippians. It's up there with rejoice. It's not to agree and sit down and like hash it out. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you need to sit down across the table and figure out your problem and agree. No, the text is saying think in the Lord. Think in the Lord or have concern for the Lord. It's the same word back in chapter two where he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
Being of the same mind is agreeing. That's what he wants them to do. Be of the same mind. And what kind of mind is this? The mind of Christ. Be of the same mind. Agree in the Lord. It's the mind or thinking that's focused on obedience to God through humility and service before him. Because he describes what the mind of Christ looks like earlier. He says in verse 5 of chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's his mind like? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mind of Christ. Agree in the Lord. Have together, share in this kind of mind of humility and service before God and his people. That's what the plea for us to agree in the Lord means to be united in having the mind of Christ. It's not looking to our status. It's not looking to our pride or our possessions, but it's thinking of the interests of others and obeying the will of God, serving for his glory and the good of his people. That's what he's calling these women to do. So what that means is when conflict arises, we're forgetting the mind of Christ. We're not doing what we're supposed to do in chapter two of having the mind of Christ. Instead, we've forgotten it. We do not glorify God, but we glorify ourselves. We do not look out for the interests of others, but we look to others to serve our own interests. We do not humbly obey God, but we pridefully serve ourselves. The plea for peace, then, is a plea to remember. Remember the mind of Christ. Remember who Jesus is and what he has done. Agree in the Lord. Remember these things of Christ. That's what he's asking these women to do. But what's he asked the body to do? Well, notice we have a role, and it's to help. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, who's the true companion? I don't know. A church father said it was Paul's wife. I don't think that's right. It could be anybody. I think it's probably just the church collectively. It's the, a true companion in the church or it's the church collectively. It doesn't matter. It's somebody of the body, somebody of the church at Philippi. He's saying, help these women. It means the body is called to help in times of conflict, not to look away. We step into the messy situation, not concerned for our reputation or what the outside world thinks about, like, oh, they got problems and they're getting into it. No, we step in to help our brothers and sisters regain the mind of Christ, to remind them that there is no irreconcilable difference among believers. By the blood of Christ, we have been reconciled to God He's redeemed us, his enemies, and we're made his beloved children. So how can we not be reconciled to other children of God? If, God's, if God has been reconciled us, if we meet that measure in Christ, then how can they not meet the measure to reconcile to us? That's what we remind each other of. Remember that God has redeemed not just you, but him and her. Syntyche, remember, Euodia has been redeemed. She's been reconciled. 
Same thing for Syntyche. The body of Christ, the local church, is called to step into the conflict and to help those who have lost the mind of Christ regain the mind of Christ. So we both have a duty. We both have a job. And I said that our job as a church is to remind, but what's that really look like? That's kind of the question we should be left with, right? How do we actually remind? How do we actually regain the mind of Christ? Well, what we see is that Paul gives us, the text gives us, a path to peace. It gives us a path to get to the mind of Christ again. So look at verses 4 to 7 with me, and we will see the path to peace from the conflict that we see in the first two verses. Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in these verses, what we see is well, for Yodi and Sintiki, it's the correction to the conflict. To us, maybe it's preventive measures against conflict. They're, they're like stepping stones in a garden. So growing up, my mom had a bunch of flower beds all around the house. And you better not step on her flowers. So what she did is she put stepping stones to lead you from one side of the garden to the other side. The dog didn't step on the stepping stones, but I had to step on the stepping stones to make sure I don't step on the flowers. And that's what this is doing, these commands in this section is doing. It's giving us these stepping stones leading from one side, which is where you have the conflict. Stepping on the stones, not stepping on the flowers, over to the other side where you have peace. This is a path of stepping stones leading to peace. So let's look at them one at a time. One step at a time. First, the first step is rejoice. It kind of gets two stones because he says it twice. Nonetheless, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Up to this point through Philippians, we have seen the word joy or rejoice 11 times. That's only three chapters. He said it 11 times. He probably thinks it's kind of important. Like, don't miss that. He's repeating it and repeating it. And now again, after 11 times, he's going to say it two more times. Now we're at 13, and we're only in the first four verses of chapter 4. What this means is that the Christian life is a life of rejoicing. That to have the peace that we are promised and to have the peace displayed, it's, it's, it's wrapped up with rejoicing. And not rejoicing in our circumstances or comfort. No, because this is Paul writing. He's an example of that. Paul's not sitting on a beach, sipping on a drink and a coconut with a fun little umbrella in it. He's sitting in a Roman prison. And he doesn't know when his last day will be. Yet, he rejoices. He's rejoicing. It's because he's not rejoicing in circumstances. He's not rejoicing in comfort. He's rejoicing in the Lord. That's why he says you can rejoice in the Lord 
always because the Lord never changes. It sounds impossible or superficial. Like who can rejoice always? You can, Christian. You can, because we don't rejoice in circumstances. We rejoice in Christ, who is always good. He's always loving. He's always present on the mountaintop and in the valley. He always hears your cries. He always stands beside you. He's always sufficient before God for your justification. He's always interceding on your behalf before the Father. And he's always sovereignly reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth. He's always in control. We can rejoice in the Lord always because of who he is and what he has done. And so when we do face trials and problems of the world, the conflicts we may have, they all dissipate. The fleeting nature Their fleeting nature is exposed when we see the eternal and constant nature of our Savior. We can rejoice always. Friends, if you want peace, rejoice in your Savior who is unchanging, not in your circumstances that are always changing. This command is the first step to peace because what it does is it takes our eyes off of our circumstances and sets them upon our Savior. And so trivial circumstances won't divide us. Instead, our rejoicing in our Savior will unite us. That's what we see on this first step. Now moving to the second step. We see that the immediate step following rejoicing is Christ-like gentleness. Paul writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The idea of reasonableness, or the King James says moderation, it's, it's a little misleading because Paul uses the same term in all the, the pastoral epistles when he talks about the qualifications for elders. And what he calls them is that they must be gentle. They must be gentle, gentle in spirit. Or Tyndale says, soft-hearted. You must have compassion and gentleness toward all. It describes someone who suffers injustice without seeking retribution. That's what it means. It's someone in in the world where it says we need to stick it to them or we need to get back at them or it's always an us versus them world. It's completely contrasting and says, no, I have an attitude of patient, gentle endurance. It's not getting back with retribution. It's gently enduring hardship. It's focused on being like our Savior, who says he is gentle and lowly in heart. It is Christ-like gentleness. That is an attitude that would prevent division. It would definitely prevent division between Euodia and Syntyche, because there's not, a, I gotta get back at you. I gotta hold a grudge against you. I have to have my respect and I have to, you have to acknowledge that I'm right. It's no, it's okay. There's no irreconcilable difference. We are reconciled already. It's an attitude focused on rejoicing in knowing Christ and his grace rather than focusing on injuries from others. And gentleness is not only possible because it's the step after rejoicing and you're just not thinking about it. No, it's possible because of what what the text says next. The Lord is at hand. Or the Lord is near. 
We're going to take that both ways. First, the Lord is at hand. In 2 Peter 3, we read that Christ is coming back. And he's going to come back and he's going to set all things right. Right? Peter says, he tells us that the earth and the works done on it will all be exposed. All that's wrong will be brought out. All that's right will be brought out. He will judge. And so now, today, we do not have to live like we need to set all wrongs right, all wrongs against us. We do not have to live saying, I've got to get back at them, but we can rejoice in knowing that Christ is coming and he will set all things right. And because he's near, because he's at hand, we can be gentle. Romans 12 exhorts us, we are to be patient in tribulation, blessing those who persecute us, not repaying evil for evil, but actually repaying evil with good because the vengeance is the Lord's. His coming is at hand. He will set all that is wrong right. We can have hope in that. And so we let everyone, notice that, it's an important word. We let everyone, not those we like, not those we're the same political affiliation, not those just in this room, we let everyone know of our gentleness. We are to be gentle with everyone, at peace, not in conflict. That's our second step. Our third step on this path to peace is prayer. In verse six, essentially, it's long, so I'm gonna summarize it up. Do not be anxious in anything, but pray in everything. Do not be anxious in anything, but pray in everything. Now, the Philippians, they've got plenty of reasons to be anxious. So I don't know how much you know about Philippi, but it's full of Roman pagan worship, like just plumful. And it's kind of the hot spot for retired Roman soldiers to have their retirement house, right? So imagine Phoenix, right, or Florida. A lot of retirees like to go there. That's Philippi. But it's not just general retirees, it's Roman soldiers. And don't forget the Roman cults there. So not too fond of Christians, right? So their livelihood, if they come out as a Christian, is at stake. Their social acceptance, being stigmatized as being a Christian, is at stake. Even for some of them, their lives are at stake. And here Paul's saying the path to peace is to not be anxious, but be prayerful. And see how it's contrasted there. Don't be anxious, instead be prayerful. It's not what we normally put as the antithesis to anxiety. It doesn't say don't be anxious and just toughen up. Don't be anxious and just ignore your problems and get over it. Don't be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious, instead pray. And just like our gentleness and our rejoicing we can cast off our anxiety in prayer because the Lord is near. See, the Philipp- with the Philippians, we can be free from anxiety and we can be steadfast in prayer because the Lord is near. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says, because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because the Lord is right here with me. Not, not the not yet near, like he's coming, but that he's already here. 
He's my strong hand, my right hand, because he's with me. Or as Paul said earlier in chapter three, because I know him, I will not be shaken. There is no anxiety, there is no wind or wave that will overwhelm me because he is near and he can carry our burdens for us, friends. We relieve our stress and our burdens and our anxieties not on our own strength, not by figuring it out, but by giving them to our Lord who is near through prayer. We just sang about this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The peace we forfeit, the pain we bear, friends, it's unnecessary. The Lord wants us to cast our burdens upon him. Did you know that? It's not just that you should pray. It's that he wants you to pray. He wants you to pray. He wants us to come to him. He doesn't grumble. Oh, another one? You need more? No. He wants to hear the prayers of his children. When he sent his people into exile, he told Isaiah to comfort them, saying, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who call on the Lord, you who pray, take no rest. He says, the city in which I dwell, the city in which you should be, I have watchmen that are watching and they're always looking and they're always listening and they're always telling me what's going on, what you need, what your pain is. And you know what? When you pray, don't stop either. I want to hear you pray. He wants us to pray constantly, not because he needs to know what's going on from us, not because he needs to know what we need, he already does, but because he wants to hear the sweet voices of his children. As a father, I know what my children need before they do. I can sit and watch Esther play, or watch her eat, which I think more ha- happens more often than play sometimes. But I can sit and watch her and I know, oh, she's gonna need me to fix that. She's gonna need new batteries for that. Or if it's eating, she's gonna need more ketchup for that. Right, like I know but instead of just getting up and doing it, I wait. I wait to hear her sweet voice say, Daddy, help. Daddy, more please. Daddy, I love you. Daddy, we're best friends. Daddy, we're on a team. (laughs) I want to hear her tender requests, her tender praises, her calls for help. I get joy from that. That's just a glimpse of the joy that God has in us when we bring our prayers, our anxieties, and our thanksgiving to him. He wants us to pray. Remember what the psalmist in Psalm 145 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him. He's right there. To all who call on him in truth, He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and he saves them. Friends, he is near and he knows and he hears and he provides. Come to him in prayer. You get one application, friends. 2022, let's pray. 
Let's pray. Let's take our anxieties. Let's not burden them on our own shoulders, but let's pray to the God who wants to hear his children pray. And what's the result of these stepping stones? Specifically this last one of prayer. Where does this lead? What's the path in the garden? Where's it going to? Well, verse seven says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So these stepping stones, they lead to the peace of God. Not not the peace that the UN's been promising for years and never accomplished. Not the peace that treaties or governments try to enact. But the perfect peace of God that has no end. It's never in jeopardy. It's never in jeopardy of running out or being overcome because he's eternal and he's omnipotent. He has all the power. Nothing can overcome him. It's the peace that met Paul when he was in the Roman jail cell, but led him to rejoice as the gospel went forth. The peace that met Epaphroditus when he faced certain death on the road to Paul, but he continued on despite the circumstances. This is the peace that no intellectual reasoning can reach. It surpasses all understanding. Instead, it's the peace of God that defies the circumstances we're in. And what this does is it guards us. It guards us and helps us do the three imperatives we've just seen. It guards our hearts and our minds. That's the one way to say all of our being. It keeps us from bitterness in our circumstances so that we can rejoice. It keeps us from anger and lashing out from injustices and so we can be gentle. And it keeps us from anxieties instead leads us to prayer. So come to him in rejoicing and gentleness and in prayer and receive what you need to do those things. But notice the last couple of words. In Christ. This peace is in Christ. The peace of God is only available by virtue of being at peace with God. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. The peace of God is only available by virtue of being at peace with God. What do I mean by that? Well, Romans 8, 7 explains that the mind is set, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God or is enmity against God. This means that in our natural state, not in Christ, we are at war with God, not at peace. We are at war with God. We're not just not paying attention. No, we're actively against him, hostile. And if we're not at peace with God, how can we have peace with God? We can't, not on our own. But by God's abounding grace, while we were still sinners, while we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for us. So he lived the life that we don't live, meaning instead of being at war with God, he was at peace with God his whole life. And then he went to the cross and died the death that we do deserve for all of our acts of war against God and gave to us his peace through resurrecting and defeating sin and death forever in the war that we rage. 
It is through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the Prince of Peace giving himself so that we can have peace, friends. It's by his grace in doing that that we can receive it through faith and repentance. And through that, you're no longer an enemy of God, but a child of God, one whom he calls beloved. And as such, by virtue of being at peace with God, then you can receive the peace of God. So, if you're not at peace with God, if you're not trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, as the only way to not be at war with God, but to be at peace with him, you will not have the peace of God. You will not have the eternal peace that you can have in Christ. If you want true, lasting peace, let your weary heart stop fighting and find its peace with God in Christ. All right. So now let's close looking at the final two verses. We've seen the plea for peace, right? We've seen that we're all susceptible to conflict. Even in the church, even as faithful followers of Jesus, and we've seen the steps that the body and, and even we, if we're in conflict, should take to help keep and foster peace, right? The path to peace. Now let's look at what a life of peace does look like. What's it look like to live in peace? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So this section contains two more commands. The last two of the book, if you don't count, greet every saint in verse 21 which transitions from what to do to get peace to what to do in everyday life as a child of God with peace, okay? So in a sense, this is what a life of peace looks like. So let's look at these two commands. First in verse eight, we see a long list of what we should think about. It goes, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Now, of course... This seems like a pretty broad list of things, right? There's, there's much that the world calls true, honorable, lovely, commendable, and so on. So what, what should we call true, honorable, lovely, and so on? Is it just what we think fits in these categories? Is it just what the world says fits in these categories? Probably not. The right answer is probably not. Instead, we should look to what Paul has to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He explains that the world is deceitful. It's calling what is wicked good. It calls what is filthy pure. It calls what is disgraceful honorable injustice. What is ugly lovely. And so to counter the deception of the world, we are to remain faithful to Scripture. He calls Timothy to remain faithful to what you have been taught in the holy scriptures because 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and here it is, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how do we know what to put in these categories? We look to scripture. The point is the word is what we use to measure and weigh all things, to know what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. This means that we need to know our Bibles. It means, it's a very simple application, but it's true. It means that we need to be in the word learning about who God is, what God is like, and what he says is good, just, lovely, and so on. Think about a search and rescue dog. I've had lots of dogs growing up, so I'm going to use a dog illustration. If it doesn't work, I'm sorry. But think about a search and rescue dog. You don't just take them out in the woods and say, all right, find them. Go get them. If you know anything about dogs, they have really short attention spans. And they're just going to find like a scent of a squirrel or a rabbit or probably someone else on the search team just like 20 feet away. They're not going to just go find this specific person that you're looking for. They're just going to pick up any scent. So you give them the true scent, an article of clothing or whatever you're looking for. You let them smell it and taste it and know it so that they don't go down the wrong scent trail. So they find what they're looking for. So they hit their mark. They know what is true because they've tasted it, literally. We're the same way. We need to get in the word, and we need to get the word in us so that we don't go down chasing the wrong trails. So we know what to look for. So we smell out what is false quickly. And so we need to read scripture. We need to, as Paul says here, think. It's like this constant thinking, this constant maybe meditation upon the word, like the man in Psalm 1. We need to think on the word to know what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely. We need to think on it and we need to know the word. So, 2022 is beginning. We're starting Genesis. Start with us in a Bible reading plan. And don't feel discouraged if you get behind. Just keep reading. Just keep reading the word. Get it in you so that you know what fits in these categories. And finally, the other command, the last command is practice. We don't just think on these things, we are to practice them. Look at verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Essentially, all that they've learned from Paul's teaching and his letters and everything that they've seen and heard about what his character is like and what he does, he's saying, I want you to do this. Friends, we need to be like Ezra. Ezra 7.10, we read, for Ezra had set his heart, his being, what he loves, everything he loves, he set his heart to study the law, so to think about it, to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it, to teach statutes and rules in all of Israel. So right thinking and meditation should never end there. 
We should set our hearts to study the word and to do it. A a life of peace is a life in the word and a life of obedience. We do, we practice what we think on. And the result is the God of peace himself being with us. That's where this ends. This is the life of peace, being in the word and practicing the word because it's here that the God of peace is with you. So by prayer, he gives us his peace that guards us and that keeps us. And by obedience, by being in the word and doing the word, his peace and presence is known among us. It is there that the God of peace, we receive the peace and the peace is made known to others. And so as a people of peace, let's dedicate ourselves to prayer, to receive his peace, and let's dedicate ourselves to thought and action of his word to display his peace. So thinking back to the problem, the lack of peace in Philippi or even among any church today, what is the solution? How can we be If we can be, how can we be a people of peace? Well, first, it's by taking the path of rejoicing, of gentleness, and prayer, and receiving the peace of God. And second, it's by living a life of peace, which is in the word and obeying the Lord. Ultimately, friends, we see that it is through prayer and the word, two most basic applications in the Christian life. And prayer, through prayer and the word that we are reminded afresh and encouraged about our peace with God and that we are renewed with the peace of God. It is in prayer that we grow in dependence upon the Prince of Peace and in the word that we grow in our love and understanding of his peace. So this new year, let's not fill our minds and our time with that which takes our gaze away from Christ. Let's not fill our minds with thinking on things that the world says is lovely, but thinking on things that the Lord says is lovely. Let's not spend our time anxiously worrying about things and our circumstances, but trusting in our sovereign Lord over all of creation. Let's not become bogged down with circumstances, division, and anger or anxiety, but let's be a people of peace in prayer and the word. Let's set our hearts, as Ezra did, to study the word and to do it for God's glory and for our peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with thanks in our heart as we reflect on the fact that you have given us peace with you by the blood of Christ. Lord, we pray that you help us to meditate on that and what that means, that it reminds us that we are your beloved children and not children of wrath, but we are at peace with the holy creator of all, and so we can be at peace with all around us. Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for peace among our own hearts and the households, among Chapelwood, among this city in Indianapolis, Lord. May we be beacons of your peace to those around us. And where we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.